Well, good morning. We are continuing in our study of the Apostles' Creed today. And uh, if you would, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3. That's on page 1016 in your pew Bibles. By the way, from time to time, we do uh, offer those Bibles to anyone in this church who does not have a Bible. Feel free to take it. It's a good Bible, and uh, we want you to have that. As I mentioned, we're encouraged, we're continuing the study of the Apostles' Creed, which brings us to the section of the Creed today where we confess Jesus' suffering. And it says this, He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. Today we're going to talk a little bit about cursing. Don't worry, we're not going to talk about cussing, as us Southerners like to say. But if you think about it, the concept of cursing is really lost largely on our society. Uh, most of us think of cursing as a choice word uttered in anger or frustration. Maybe some of us think of cursing as a spell cast by an evil character in a Harry Potter book, or maybe a voodoo spell of some kind. Well, that's really not the kind of cursing that we're going to talk about today. As a matter of fact, most of us don't even think much about cursing at all. We don't think that it's that bad, really, for, for many of us. But in Old Testament times, cursing was a really bad thing, and they thought really badly of it. It's much more serious than a Harry Potter spell. See, biblical curses were prescribed for people who violated the covenant of God just like biblical blessings rested on those who obeyed. The covenant stipulations are, are summarized for us in the Ten Commandments, but they're unpacked for us in books like Deuteronomy. We have all kind of rules and regulations given to the Old Testament believers. These were the covenant stipulations that they were to abide by. According to R.C. Sproul, the concept of blessedness involves a unique quality of happiness that is inseparably related to being in God's presence and enjoying him. Well, conversely, the concept of cursing is a removal from God's presence. It's being cast outside of the camp and cut off from the benefits of God. Well, why am I bringing up biblical cursings and blessings now? I'm bringing it up because it relates directly to the part of the creed that we're going to talk about this morning. In this part of the creed, we confess Jesus' suffering and death. We are confronted with the links that God had to go to redeem a sinful people like us for himself. In fact, the Apostle Paul writes it this way, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. You see, Jesus Christ was born to suffer the curse that we have earned for ourselves by our act of treason against 
a holy God. He suffered so that we might instead receive the blessings that we could never earn. So let's see what 1 Peter has to say here. If you would stand and read, we'll read from 1 Peter chapter 3. Stand with us. Stand together. We'll be reading uh, starting in verse 18 of chapter 3 and then down into chapter 4. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. And then chapter 4, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can be seated. Let's pray together. Lord, uh, I need your help. We need your help. We need your Holy Spirit to come even now, Lord, and to illumine this passage to us, illumine your scripture to us, Lord, so that we might understand what you have to say to us today. This is not a random event. Lord, you are sovereignly in control of all that goes on here. So we look to you, Lord, and to your word to speak to our hearts today. Transform us, Lord, as we, as we hear your word, as we seek to put it into practice, even in this place, even on this day. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Today's sermon, we're going to look at two things. First, we're going to look at how Jesus suffered for his church. And then we're going to be reminded of all the good things that come from his and even our own suffering. Jesus suffered the curse, as I mentioned, that his people deserve. He suffered the curse that his people deserve. How's that? Well, first and foremost, he suffered injustice by authorities. He suffered injustice by the authorities under Pontius Pilate. In the Old Testament times, particularly in the wilderness, when the tribe of Israel was crossing the desert and they they camped together, it was an Old Testament practice to put those who were unclean or who were sinful outside of the camp of God. They were outside of the camp, so to speak. Well, the Jews feared being put outside the camp more than anything. It It meant separation. It meant separation from God's people, but more importantly, it meant separation from God himself. In fact, it meant cursing. Jesus was not judged by his own Jewish people. He was cast outside of the camp, if you will, to the court of a Gentile ruler named Pontius Pilate. He was was judged there and condemned, and then again he was cast outside of the camp for his crucifixion. You know, even though his trial was a mockery, God was using Pontius Pilate, though, to execute his plan of redemption. The charges of treason that were leveled against Jesus were, in fact, charges of treason against us. We have all rebelled against God. We have all rebelled from our births. And although Jesus, the innocent, was condemned as a guilty man, the treasonous man, Barabbas, if you recall, was set free. Well, folks, 
We are all Barabbases. We are released from the death that we deserve by the substitution of the innocent man, Jesus. Well, another way that Jesus suffered was that he suffered the penalty of death itself. And by this death, he was crucified, it said died and buried, and descended into hell. Jesus' suffering, as we read in the catechisms, did not begin at the cross. It began at his birth. By taking on a human body, he entered into a, he entered into a broken world full of suffering and hardship. How did he suffer? Well, he suffered poverty, for one. He suffered temptation. He suffered tiredness. Yet all of his suffering was without sin. So that he might become a perfect sacrifice for us. As horrific as Jesus' death on the cross was, and it was, as horrific as his crucifixion, death, and then burial, it really was nothing unusual for the first century. In fact, without the statement, he descended into hell, he suffered a death just like any other ordinary criminal suffered in the first century. But by the creed statement that he descended into hell, we realize the uniqueness, the true uniqueness of Jesus' death experience. You see, this statement is not saying that he went to the place of hell. It's rather meant to summarize, as John Calvin believed, the statements that come before it about his crucifixion, death, and burial. On the one hand, he descended in, in hell is meant to sum up the full horror of his unique suffering. But yet, on the other hand, it provides us a key to seeing that all the cross has accomplished for God's people. What happened? All of the sin of his people was placed on him at the cross, outside of the camp of God's presence. Then, if you remember, the father turned his face from him. The father looked away. And finally, because the wages of all sin is always death, Scripture tells us, God's judgment and wrath was poured out on him in punishment for our sins. This was, in fact, his descent into hell. It is meant to remind us of the purpose for which he came and suffered. His purpose to save a people from their sins as a substitutionary, substitutionary sacrifice. He suffered the hell that we deserve so that rather experiencing his just wrath, what we deserve, we would instead receive his eternal blessing, brothers and sisters. He satisfied the covenant requirements for all who believe in him so that we would receive a blessing instead of a curse. How unbelievable is that? Well, just Jesus took the curse that we deserve, but, but brothers and sisters, he gave us so much more than just forgiveness of sin. His people receive the blessing that they don't deserve in him. How is this? Well, let me use an illustration. And this is uh, imperfect, as all illustrations are, but 
in my uh, limited time as a gardener, <laughs> um, I once tried to plant tulips in my yard. And as you know anything about gardening, tulips are very temperamental uh, flowers. They have to be planted at a certain depth, a certain type of soil, turned in the correct direction so that they'll grow correctly. All of this, and then covered over by soil, and you've got to wait at the time of year for them to bloom. Well, just as an aside, my experience was not good. Mine didn't come up. <clears throat> but in a similar way, as a metaphor, the tulip bulb is our life. Christ's life is in that tulip bulb. Just it's, His life is in us, just like that tulip bulb. The life causes the growth. The life causes that stem of growth to sprout up through the soil, through the adversity and suffering of life, to make its way to the air and to the sunlight that causes a beautiful flower to, to flourish. See, we receive the blessing of Jesus' suffering before us. Jesus suffered before us so that we could receive his, the blessing of that suffering. His suffering reproduces this growth in us that I mentioned. His suffering gives blessing to us in at least three other important ways. First of all, his suffering unites us to him. Let's listen to what Romans 6 tells us. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe we will also live with him. Our suffering unites us to him. His death breaks the power of sin forever in each of our lives. We are no longer struggling to be free from this sin, but are rather now freed from its power in order to bring our sin, as Romans tells us, to nothing. We're to bring our sin to nothing, he tells us. Likewise, in, in chapter 4 of 1 Peter that we read, that as we suffer the effects of sin, Christ also suffered, yet without sinning, by coming in the flesh and experiencing what we experience. By that suffering, Peter says we will cease sinning and begin to live for God rather than for earthly passions. This kind of suffering is actually a conduit for God's blessing. It's actually a pipeline for God to pour out his blessings on all of us. We are truly blessed by being united with him in his suffering. The second way that we are blessed is that his suffering transfers his righteousness to us, Scripture tells us. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Let me read that again. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. His suffering transfers his righteousness to us. It's significant that Christ's suffering not only satisfied once and for all the just penalty for our sins, it also purchased for us the righteousness that he earned by his perfect life. 
We're not, merely, we're not merely brought back to the place of Adam before the fall. Think about that. Adam was without sin before he fell. We're not merely brought back to that state, but rather we're transferred into the status of holy royalty by virtue of Jesus's perfect righteousness. How wonderful. Our new status is secured by none other than God himself, and nothing, nothing we do can change this fact. All of the spiritual blessings given to the Son who suffered by the Father are now ours to enjoy as well. We are indeed greatly favored, brothers and sisters. A third way we are blessed is that his suffering gives us life. Peter also reminds us later in chapter 4 that as we arm ourselves with the results and the implications of Christ's suffering for us, we will then cease from sin and instead live for the will of God. We will cease from sin and instead live for the will of God. You see, right living is in reality life. Proverbs tells us, the wage of the righteous leads to life. The gain of the wicked to sin. And then again in Hebrews, we're reminded that before the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. The fruit of righteousness is yielded by our suffering. So arming ourselves with the implications of suffering actually whittles away at our desire to sin. Our primary motivation begins to change and to shift away from self-centeredness to God-centeredness. We slowly change from always living for our own desires to living for the glory of God. Peter ends chapter 4 with an exhortation. Let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good, he says. Let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Peter consoles all of us who suffer with Christ with the knowledge that as we do good, God is faithful and we can trust him with our very souls. Many of us take great comfort in the promises from Scripture, like those we find in Psalms, like Psalm 23, in which we hear of God's presence and comfort in the valley of the shadow of death. However, this was not to be of any comfort to, Lord, to our Lord Jesus on the cross. Rather than relishing God's presence, as the psalmist does, his father turned away from him. Instead of protecting him in the valley of the shadow of death, the rod and the staff of judgment punished him for our sins. You see, Jesus suffered in a real body, in a real place in time and history, the just, puni just punishment for your sins and for mine. He took the curse that we deserved for our sin, and instead, he gave us his very righteousness. Let me ask you, how are you suffering today? 
All of us are. Have you considered how the suffering of Jesus draws you to him in your time of suffering? Jesus suffered hell so that we might have a relationship with him. His suffering purchased for us, his people, the eternal blessing of heaven so that we might live as sons and daughters of the king. Our Lord gives us a gracious gift to remind us of his work in this table of communion. Through the symbols of bread and fruit of the vine, we eat, we drink, and we remember what he's accomplished on our behalf. We receive the spiritual nourishment that is necessary for our growth in Christ. Let us therefore approach this table with great joy, knowing that his suffering and ours is never in vain. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, indeed, your suffering was not in vain. We look to you and to your suffering, Lord, to redeem us from the punishment that we so deserve, Lord, for our sins. Thank you, Lord, for the great promise that we have before us, that the suffering that you had, that you went through on your time on this earth, then to your time on the cross, and the suffering you encountered there, Lord, we thank you that all of that is, is useful for us to build us up, to drive us forward in our own growth. Thank you, Lord, for the great suffering. We pray that our suffering would reflect the grace that your suffering has been on our behalf. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.